We appreciate the presence of each one today. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans this morning. Book of Romans. We're going to take our study from a passage found toward the end of the book today. So just appreciate everybody being here. I appreciate those who have led us in our worship today and the good way that everyone's participated. It's good for us to be here and to spend a little bit of time, uh, just a little bit of time on the Lord's Day, a couple of hours in serious uh, worship and expressing our gratitude to God for the things He's done for us, uh, expressing our devotion to Him uh, and our commitment to Him to serve Him as faithfully as we can. Take these times seriously. Uh, uh, we hope that there's some substance to them and to this real meaning to what we do and real significance to what we do here this morning and that it has an impact on our lives. It influences us and shapes our thinking and shapes our behavior so that we can serve God faithfully. And so we're glad you're here. And our hope is that it's been beneficial for us to be here this morning. We'll just talk a little bit about the book of Romans today as we work our way toward the passage we're going to look at. The book of Romans is all about the gospel of Christ. If you study the book of Romans, you'll find that at the end, and really at the beginning as well, Paul expresses a desire to go to, to Rome. And uh, that would be a strategic city in the spread of the gospel. It's the capital of the empire. All roads lead to and lead away from Rome. The, there is a church there, but Paul has never been there himself. In fact, as early as Acts chapter 2, we have visitors from Rome on the day of Pentecost, and perhaps some of them heard the gospel and obeyed the gospel and took the gospel back to Rome and established a church there. But, but Paul had never been. He hopes to go, and he hopes to be supported by the church there as he travels to places farther away, for example, to Spain, and preach the gospel there. And so, in about A.D. 57... He put down in writing for them to read and understand the fundamental elements of his message, the gospel of Christ. I'm hoping to come to you. I'm hoping that you'll send me on my way further as I go out to preach the gospel. Here's what I believe and here's what I teach. I want you to read it. I want you to understand it so that you can support me in my efforts to spread the gospel even more. The thematic statement of the book of Romans is found in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul there highlights the gospel and the importance of the gospel in God's plan. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And so the gospel is the central feature of, the, uh, of, of God's plan. This is the thematic statement of the book of Romans. And the letter discusses the gospel at length. And so this way I outline the book of Romans. You might find it helpful or not, but uh, just make of it what you will. The gospel is God's power to save to everyone who believes. And again, there's that thematic statement in the book of Romans, a very early uh, earliest part of it. And then Paul discusses everyone's need of the gospel because everyone has sinned. 
And so in chapter 1, verse 18, he begins to discuss the Gentiles' need of the gospel. And then he follows that with a discussion of the Jews' need of the gospel. Everyone needs the gospel because all have sinned, fall short of God's glory, and are lost, deserving of God's wrath, and they need to be saved. They're saved through the gospel. Then we have a discussion, a very brief passage that describes the very heart of the gospel, which is the cross of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ. And so he is set forth as a propitiation by faith in his blood. This is the heart, the central feature of the gospel, the cross of Christ, the death of Christ, who atones for our sins through the shedding of his blood. Then we find the scriptural support of the gospel. And so Paul turns to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, for example, which says, Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him for righteousness. And so by our faith, we are made right with God. The scriptures support that idea. The scriptures testify to that as well. Uh, he also refers to the 32nd Psalm. Then that followed, is followed by a discussion of the blessings of the gospel. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of chapter 5, the second half of that, he discusses how the work of Christ reverses the work of Satan, uh, the work of Adam. Adam brought sin and death and condemnation, but Christ brings righteousness and life and justification. Then in chapter 6, we find the responsibilities that are upon those who obey the gospel. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, absolutely not. We've died to sin. How can we continue to live in sin? Then he discusses the gospel, life under the law, and life led by the Spirit in chapters 7 and 8. He discusses the relationship between Israel and the Gentiles in the gospel in chapters 9 through 11. And then in verses 12 through chapters 12 through 16, day-to-day -day living in the gospel. Paul ends the book of Romans, chapter 16, sees a lengthy discussion. Chapter 16, he ends the letter with a statement of praise. And it's that statement that we're going to look at for the most part this morning. Verse 25. Now, to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made to all, known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen. These, these kinds of statements are called doxologies, from the Greek word for glory. And so he's saying, in effect, now to God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. And then he elaborates that on the, in this, the middle part. Just want to draw out three ideas from this particular statement. We have, we have a tendency, I think, to just kind of rush through or pass over these closing statements. We've worked our way through the book of Romans. It's a long study. It's a complicated study. And now we get to the end, and we're just ready to get to the last verse and kind of pass over it without giving it much thought. There's a great deal in statements like this that we need to pay attention to. The first thing I'll note is that the gospel is something new. The gospel is something new. And so he refers to the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. There's something new about the gospel. 
The gospel, in a sense, has been kept secret for long ages past, but now it's made known. Now it's been revealed. Now it has been manifested. Now, at the heart of the gospel, we saw just a moment ago, is the cross of Christ. We find that in Romans 3, verse 21. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. It's the cross of Christ that enables God to forgive our sins. And so it's the fact that sin is punished by death, which is just penalty for sin. Sin is punished by death by Christ on the cross that enables God then, when we turn to God in faith in Christ, to forgive us of our sins. The human predicament involves the alienation of man from God and how to resolve the situation. We are alienated from God. We are separated from God who is altogether holy, who is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all, and yet we've stepped into the darkness. How do we... How is the situation resolved? How is it remedied? How do we get back into fellowship with God after all have sinned and fall short of His glory? In fact, we are deserving of God's wrath. God's wrath is poured out against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And we've participated in that at some point in our lives. We've done something ungodly and unrighteous. And as a result, we are deserving of God's wrath. Now, what can we do about that? What can be done? Well, we can't do anything about it in and of ourselves. We've transgressed God's law, you see. Not our law. We transgress God's law. We've sinned against Him. And so only He can resolve the problem. And in order to solve the problem, He's done something that never entered into the mind of man. He's done something new. You see, no one, none of the great philosophers of the past, none of the great moralists or ethicists or theologians for that matter, ever suggested the plan that God put into action. Now, something similar to this is said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. We speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to, to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had understood. If they had understood it, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. And so God did something new in order to redeem us, to save us from our sins in the death of Christ. This was the plan of God to reconcile man to himself. God himself, in the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, but God himself would come into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh on behalf of sinful men. That's the terminology used in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. In the likeness of sinful flesh. And he did that on behalf of sinful men. So just think about that. God Himself says, well, I'll, here's what I'll do to bring these people back to me. I'll become one of them. I'll live among them. 
I'll experience what they, what they experience. I'll suffer what they suffer in order to bring them to me. And he became, of all things, not a great king riding on a you know, white horse or a, a military general fighting the battle and conquering the world, like Alexander the Great, perhaps. He became a Jewish carpenter, <laughs> a lowly, humble Jewish peasant. Who would have thought of that? Here's what God, I'll become one of them, and what I'll do, I'll become a Jew. And even more than that, I'll become a Jewish peasant. And I'll live among them. I'll walk among them. I'll be what they are. I'll experience what they experience. He took the trespasses of all people upon himself, though he himself would commit no sin. All the sins of the world, all the trespasses that have ever been committed or will ever be committed have been placed upon him, although he himself was guilty of no sin. And he would make satisfaction for these trespasses by giving up his life and by shedding his blood in the most ignominious fashion, in the most shameful of all deaths. And so I will give up my life for your sin. I will make satisfaction. I will appease the wrath of God. I will propitiate His wrath by dying the death that the guilty ones should die. I'll do that. And not only just die a death, but the most shameful death, Roman crucifixion. And we talk about sometimes all the things that that involves. Scourging. He was humiliated. He was ridiculed. Crown of thorns placed in derision upon his head. He was mocked. He was spit on. He was slapped. All these things, stripped of his clothing. All these things nailed to a cross, not for his own sin, but to atone for your sin and my sin. And this act of obedience would pay the just penalty for sin, that is death. See, the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth, lived among us as one of us. Our sins were heaped upon Him. He paid the price for those sins. And when we, the sinful people, put our faith, our trust, our confidence in Him and in His work on the cross, when we meet His conditions, repentance and baptism in His name, our trespasses are no longer counted against us. We are forgiven and made right in God's sight. That's something that never entered the mind of man. That, that's, that's new, isn't it? <laughs> the idea that God Himself would come to earth and live among us and take our sin on Himself and atone for them, satisfy His own righteous wrath against us so that we can be set free. Well, that's the plan. I want to read a few passages that support what I've just said. Galatians, or rather Philippians chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. You see the elements of what I just went through there in that particular passage. Look at the book, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 
2 Corinthians chapter 8, just one verse that suggests the ideas I'm, I'm putting forward. Verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you might, through His poverty, become rich. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is, is, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creature. The old things have passed away, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors of Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. For He Himself is our peace. Speaking of Christ, we have peace with God through Christ. He Himself is our peace, who made both Jew and Gentile into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in Himself He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by having put to death the enmity." Look at a, a few passages from 1 Peter, just two or three short statements there about the atonement we have in Christ. We read, we've read, we read one earlier this morning, verse 17 of chapter 1. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time that you stay on earth, knowing that you were redeemed not with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 24. And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by His wounds you were healed. You see it again in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also died for us, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You see, the gospel is something new. Something that all the great philosophers over the course of time, all the great teachers, all the great theologians, you know, all those people up to Christ, never imagined what God would do in Christ. That God Himself would become one of us, live in the earth, take our sins upon Himself, make atonement for them by shedding His blood on the cross. In addition to that, we might also note that when He did that, He ushered in a new phase of history. So Christ is crucified, our sins are forgiven, He's buried, He's raised from the dead on the third day, He ascends to God's right hand, where He rules over us today. So God's kingdom, God's rule, God's dominion is administered through Christ. And so when Christ ascends into heaven, something new happens. A new phase of history begins. 
Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 26 talks about the consummation of the ages. He would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the consummation of the ages, at the end of the old era, an old period of time, and the beginning of the new period of time, we find the death of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20 say, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, the new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. The gospel is something new. Something new that hadn't been done before in God becoming man and atoning for our sins. And it brings into being the new era, the new kingdom of God, which is administered by His Son who sits at His right hand. In addition to that, the gospel is something old, something new, and something old. And so you see it here in Romans 16, where it says that it is witnessed by the scriptures of the prophets. The gospel is anticipated in the scriptures of the prophets. In fact, there's a statement over in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, and verse 8, which suggests that the gospel was preached to Abraham very early on, verse 8. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, All nations will be blessed in you. And so the scriptures tell us about the gospel, the gospel of Christ, the plan of God to save man, the plan we've just been talking about. But it talks about that long, long before the events actually happen. Well, what I've put together here is just a, a, a list. We don't have time to read all of these, but just a list of Old Testament passages that preview and look forward to the coming of Christ and His work on the cross. The seed of woman would come and bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. Here's Genesis chapter 3. So from the very beginning, God is already beginning to reveal His plan to redeem man. The seed of Abraham would bless all nations. Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3 and other passages. This promise is repeated to Isaac and Jacob as well. In Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17, there's a passage in which uh, Moses says that he can see, from, from his point of view, he can see one coming described as a star and, and scepter. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come from Jacob, and a scepter shall arise from Israel, shall crush through the forehead of Moab, tear down all the sons of Sheth. The star and scepter that will come from Israel is Christ, of course. Deuteronomy 18, God tells Moses, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you. To him shall the obedience of the peoples be. People should obey him. 2 Samuel 7 uh, God promises David, I'm going to establish your king forever, your kingdom forever, from one of your descendants. In the Psalms, we find numerous, numerous passages that are fulfilled in Christ. The this, this second Psalm, you are my son, the Lord says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Again, fulfilled in Christ. The 16th Psalm says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Uh, the 110th Psalm is the Psalm that says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so the Psalms, several Psalms, I've got 
the 16th Psalm up there twice by mistake. But more than these, look forward to the coming of Christ. Several passages in the book of Isaiah also predict the coming of Christ and His work. The government will be upon His shoulders, Isaiah 9 and verse 6. Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant who will come and make atonement for sin by bearing the sins of the people. Jeremiah predicts the branch of David will come and a new covenant in chapter 31. Ezekiel also predicts a new David who will come. Jesus, of course, is the son of David. Daniel refers to one like a son of man receiving a kingdom and that the kingdom of God will be established during the days of the Roman Empire. The, the gospel is old. It's new, but it's something old as well. We often think that the new is better. The old is worn out. It's out of date. It's of little use. And sometimes the old is better. Uh, but I mean, the old, well, I would think sometimes it's that the old is out of date and is past its usefulness. But sometimes the old is better. It has stood the test of time. It has substance and real importance. We've seen that the gospel is new, but the gospel is also old. And so the scriptures teach the truth of the gospel all the way back to the beginning. And what these passages show us is that God has one seamless, coherent plan running throughout history, beginning with the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3 and fulfilled in Christ. This coherence through time is a testimony to its truth. What else teaches in this way? Uh, of what else can you say, going all the way back, hundreds of years, thousands of years, we can see the elements of this truth being discussed. And so its age is a testimony to its truth, to its validity. One other point is this. Romans chapter 16, the gospel is for all. And you see that down in verse 26, that the gospel has been made known to all the nations. Paul makes this point earlier in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. The scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. All are acceptable to God through Christ. Paul, Peter learned this lesson in Acts chapter 10. He goes to the house of Cornelius and says, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears Him and does what's right is welcome to Him. Jesus in Matthew chapter 15 makes the statement, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And it's true that most of his work was focused on Israel, was focused on bringing his message to the Jews. But Jesus also commends the faith of the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. He taught the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. He healed the servant of the centurion in Luke chapter 7. He taught Pharisees like Nicodemus, but he also taught sinners at the house of Matthew. He gives the Great Commission to make disciples of all the nations, to preach the gospel to all creation. And so we find the apostles doing just that. Paul taught women like Lydia in Acts chapter 16, but men like the Philippian jailer, for example. 
He taught kings like Agrippa in Acts 26, but common people like the jailer in Acts chapter 16. He taught people in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Syria, Cilicia, Asia, Philippi, Corinth, Rome, and elsewhere. And so in the New Testament, we find people who were Jews, Greeks, Romans, Cretans, Syrians, Macedonians, and even an Ethiopian becoming Christians. The gospel is for all. Even today, the gospel is for all. We don't need to set any boundaries or any limits on people we try to reach with the gospel. And thankfully, I'm thankful to say, I don't think we do. The gospel is for all, and everyone is welcome to come and hear the gospel without limitation, without boundary. Well, here are just three elements of the gospel. It's something new. We've talked about that, how it's new. It's something old. We've talked about that, how its age supports the veracity, the truthfulness of the gospel. We've suggested that the gospel is for all. All of this together shows us how unique the gospel is. It speaks to the special nature of the gospel. It stands out in attempts that people make to uh, kind of uh, make sense of our lives or, or uh, bring peace and satisfaction to our lives. And so the gospel stands out among all of those attempts to deal with our problems. We hope that by talking about these things today, it'll help each of us see the validity of the gospel, the truthfulness of the gospel, and then accept it. What else is new like the gospel is new? What else is old like the gospel is old? And it's for you, and it's for me, and everyone who will accept it. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for the opportunity to come together today and, and, and worship you. We pray, Father, that the songs that we've sung today, the, the prayers that we've prayed, our, our observance of the Lord's Supper has been done in spirit and truth, and that you've been pleased with it. Our Father, we're thankful that you've revealed the gospel to us, that it's been preserved for us, that we have access to it, that we can read it and understand it. Father, we stand in awe of your greatness, your wisdom, your power. We're thankful that your Son was willing to come into this world and live among us as one of us, that he was willing to bear our sin on the, on the cross and make atonement for those sins so that your wrath is turned away and that you accept us. We're thankful that, for that, Father. There's no way that we could have accomplished that by ourselves. We're thankful, Father, that you've shown us the gospel in its fullness, that we see how you've worked this plan throughout the ages, throughout all time. Your efforts, your aim has been to bring sinful men and women into fellowship with yourself. Our Father, we're thankful that you've revealed the plan to us, that we can read it and understand it. We can see its wisdom, and we can see its greatness. Our Father, we're thankful to be able to hear and understand the gospel. We're thankful that you have exerted your power to save in the world and in our lives. May we accept it, Father, and obey and may we teach others your saving message as well, so that they too can experience the joy of being in fellowship with you. 
We're thankful for all of these things, Father, and it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. If you're subject